I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. The title of the message is This Means War. Now we have been studying the book of Ephesians together for nearly a year now. It's hard to believe. And before we move into what I like to call the, the home stretch, I want to briefly review, and I promise it will be brief, the important territory that we have covered over the last 11 months or so. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he took the Ephesian believers to the, the peak of the mountain, as it were, and he helped them see the vast multitude of, of the blessings that were theirs in Christ. In chapter 1, we learn that the fountainhead of all the blessings reverts back to God the Father. That each of these blessings are spiritual blessings, that they are also linked to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, we learned that each and every one of these blessings is totally undeserved. Here in this chapter, we learn about our inheritance that is in Christ. This is an inheritance that was predestined before the foundation of the world. It was according to the purpose of God who works all things together according to the counsel of His sovereign will. Chapter 2. Here Paul helped the Ephesian believers to see that they were at one time dead in their trespasses and sins, that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they learned that they could never be saved by works, but that they were saved for good works. That is, justifying faith always leads the people of God to, to bear good fruit. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We learned in chapter 2 that we are intimate friends with God. We have peace with God. I want you to think about that just for a minute. Have you stopped just for a minute to think about the, the biblical reality that you, if you are a follower of Christ, have peace with God? You have also been reconciled to God all because of Christ's completed work on the cross. We are members of God's family. Paul says in chapter 2, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Move forward to chapter 3 where we bore witness to the drama of the gospel. And the drama of the gospel reminds us to maintain a God-centered perspective. When we suffer, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When we feel weak, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When we feel tired and overwhelmed, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When, and I'm sure this has never happened to you, when, when life seems like it's spinning out of control, we remind ourselves of the gospel. When we grow discouraged or disheartened, we remind ourselves of the gospel. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul helped us to understand the the importance of maintaining our unity in the body of Christ. Additionally, we learned about the importance of growing into a mature, fully developed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have learned together that God blesses the church with grace and spiritual leadership so that she might be mature. In chapter 5, Paul continues to, to focus intently on our conduct, which is riveted exclusively on God. You remember he said, be imitators of God. Therefore, our responsibility is to walk in love. We are to walk in purity. We have also in recent days learned the importance of biblical submission. We have learned that the S word is a word that we love. Biblical submission. And we've applied that reality across the board to wives and husbands and children and employees. And we learn that, that there are no exemptions. We are all under authority. Now after Paul unpacks this, this weighty, weighty teaching, if you would look with me at Ephesians 6 verse 10. He utters this word. He says... Finally, can you imagine, as the Apostle Paul writes, likely chained to a, a guard, he writes the, the word finally, which indicates that he is almost done with his letter, which, by the way, is, is penned for the benefit, for the instruction and the encouragement of the people of God. That includes us. And after considering all that we have learned over the past year in this amazing book, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Now, we are going to learn this morning that that phrase, be strong, is the first of three commandments in this section of Scripture. It's the first of three imperatives, which are strategic imperatives. They, they help to lay the foundation for what we will later learn in verses 14 through 20. Now, before we wrestle with this passage, I need to share a few things with you. First of all, from the heart, I have been looking forward to, to preaching from this passage. This is an important passage, and I think it will come as a great encouragement to you. But the second thing I need to say is that I want you to notice that there is something here that should strike you as, as very, very significant. You see, after all that Paul has written about, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, all through chapter 5, he comes now to the middle of chapter 6. 
After all of the gospel-centered hope that we enjoy in this life and the life to come, after all of the realities of the gospel that have exploded into our lives, Paul does something very interesting. He assumes something. He assumes something. And what he assumes that will take place in the lives of the Ephesian believers and what, by way of extension, he he, he assumes, he also assumes for you and I. Here's what he assumes. Paul the Apostle assumes that there will be a struggle. He assumes, even after all he has shared in chapters 1 to 5, That Christians will struggle. And we will take time to explore the essence of this struggle in a moment. But I want to also add, you you have likely, unless you have been living under a rock or are a caveman, you have likely heard the gospel proclaimed in such a way that if you believe in Jesus and if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, then all your problems will go away. Have you heard that gospel? You see, this is one of the the, the many problems with the so-called prosperity gospel. You see, nothing could be further from the truth. You might have put put it this way. If you're not a Christian this morning and you decide to become a Christian, your problems will begin today. It doesn't mean that you didn't have problems before, but your problems will likely intensify because now you are a marked target. Where before you were just... A member of the devil's team. Now you become his enemy as a Christian. You see, the prosperity gospel is an anti-gospel. And pay close attention as you hear it on the radio, as you watch on television, as you read it in so-called Christian books. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, call it what you will, is anti-gospel. The prosperity gospel is simply opposed to the gospel in every way, shape, and form. But even those who rightly reject the prosperity gospel can easily fall into a kind of thinking that seems to suggest, that seems to insinuate that when you become a Christian, all your troubles will melt away. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. In some respects, you might say, as I already indicated, that when you become a Christian, that's when your, tr- your struggles truly begin to take shape. What does it look like? Some of the younger Christians this morning, or if you haven't been a Christian for very long, you might ask, well, Pastor, wh- what do those struggles look like? Well, some of you will experience days of profound discouragement. Some of you will face days that are filled with depression. Jereen and Nathan and I were talking a few days ago about a song. And uh, Nathan actually surfaced the song for us. And there's a, there's a, a Christian band in Seattle that has, has reformulated this very old hymn. And this hymn, as we got discussing it, was written by a man by the name of William Cooper. And some of you know him very well. He, is, he was a poet, a hymn writer, and a theologian. What most people are unaware of is that William Cooper struggled with depression his whole life. Here is a man who was really at the brink of death for many of his adult days. He battled discouragement. He battled depression. He was even suicidal at certain junctures of his life. Others of you will face doubt some of your college students may go off to college and have a, have a crisis of faith. I know I had a, my crisis of faith where I began to ask, is all of this true? Was I just fed all of this by those who were around me and my, my pastors and my parents and my teachers and my mentors? Or is it truly true? You may go through a season of, of deep and profound darkness. You may walk through a season of disaster. And here's the kicker. You might walk through all of these things. And it might all happen at once. And so it is in this context of this assumed struggle that Paul offers a biblical solution which will enable our hands for battle. 
It is in the context of this struggle that Paul the Apostle sets forth the proper mindset and the proper methodology on the battlefield. I'm convinced with all of my heart that it is time for Christians to wake up. I believe with all my heart it is time for Christians to open their their eyes and their ears to reality. It's time to wake up and to view things with a fresh perspective that is seen through, through the prism of God's Word. It's time to wake up and see things from God's perspective. Why? There is a battle. If you're a Christian, whether you realize it or not, you are in a battle. And if you are in the battle, you have also realized that this battle is intense. You've realized that this battle is spiritual. Every morning I go for a walk. And this morning I was up early before the chickens began to crow or whatever, the rooster's crow, I don't know the difference is. And I'm walking this morning and I'm, I'm listening to a pastor who you would all be familiar with. He's one of my heroes and I, I love this man. And he is, is preaching this passage. I just wanted to make sure I got it right. And he made a confession that just blew my mind, but really it shouldn't have blown my mind. He said to his church family, he says, I woke up this morning, my eyes opened, and I looked at the ceiling, and I said to myself, great, it's Sunday. That means I have to preach. I almost tripped and fell down. But what's going on with this well-known Bible preacher? Well, this is, this is warfare. This is warfare. And he said all it took was to get up and, and shower up and have, have some breakfast and spend some time with, with God and His Word. And next thing you know, he's getting in his car and he can't wait to get in the pulpit. You see, this is warfare. Are you convinced of it? This is warfare that we are engaged in. And so I trust this morning that your, your spiritual eyes are open, that you are in this posture of spiritual readiness. And if you're in that posture... Would you look with me and would you stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10. Once again, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Father, it is with great eagerness and with eyes wide open and a posture of readiness that we approach this very important passage. God, I pray that you would be merciful uh, to, to these fellow soldiers. God, I pray that they would be uh, ready to receive the word of God and that the spirit of God would, would apply this very important truth, this theological reality to their hearts and that it would translate in action. God, we are not content to merely learn the Word of God. We want to move out into the marketplace of ideas and be people of action. God, I thank you that your Son won the victory on Calvary's cross. That the battle is won. But you have left us in the battle and we recognize that you have sufficiently equipped us and that you will enable our hands as we will see today. So we trust you to encourage us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So a little bit of feedback, Chris, and I, I think I'm going to start yelling here real quick. So get ready. That's even better, I can tell. I want to begin with this question and ask, what is it that God expects of of you and I, what is it that he expects of these spiritual soldiers? And there's, there's two things I want you to see 
in this passage. The first thing that God requires from spiritual soldiers is divine courage. He calls you and I to be a people of divine courage. And you can see that very clearly in verse 10. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord. You might say it this way, that in many respects, this is our greatest need. You see, the church in the 21st century can accurately be described as spineless. Simply put, we have in large measure lost our courage. We are weak-kneed. We are timid. We are fearful. We are passive. We are so much like the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. You will remember this very well. When confronted by Dorothy for his fearful disposition, the lion freely admits, You're right, I'm a coward. I haven't any courage of all. Here's my favorite part. I even scare myself. That's the local church. Is we have grown timid. We have grown passive. We are spineless. We lack theological depth. We have lost our nerve. We lack a theological backbone. In the 21st century, the church also lacks conviction. And for the most part, I would say that we do not possess the the fiery faith of the Puritans. I wish we did. And I have hope that we will. For the most part, we do not possess the bold resolve of the Reformers. We have turned into a spineless lot. The president of Wheaton University, Philip Graham Ryken, several years ago, Addressing the apostasy of Israel poses a sobering question. Dr. Riken says, what verdict would God render about the contemporary church? The dominant sin of Jerusalem, forgetting God, has become a predominant sin in the American church, so says Dr. Riken. And so the church has lost her courage. We have, we have capitulated to the culture. We have lost our influence and once again... We have become spineless. And so one of our greatest needs, I believe, as, as soldiers in this army who are on this battlefield is spiritual strength. You and I, along with the Ephesian believers, we need divine courage. And Paul helps us to understand how it will happen. He says in verse 10, he says, be strong in the Lord. And I want to take several minutes to really meditate here on this little phrase, be strong in the Lord. And I specifically want to have you look with me at three very important observations. What does it mean? First of all, be strong in the Lord is a command. It is an imperative. The Greek word translated strong simply means to be rendered capable or to have the ability to perform certain tasks. Now, in this case, Paul is referring to divine capability or divine spiritual strength on the battlefield. That is, we are called to be strong and courageous in the Christian life. Now, you know very well that this command to be strong and to be courageous and to fear not is found all throughout the scripture. Joshua chapter 1 verse 7. Don't you love Joshua? Joshua was the man. Joshua 1.7 says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law of Moses, my servant commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, we read, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good for him. I can tell you that personally, I have derived much strength and much comfort and much courage by, by reviewing and reading and meditating on the psalm. Psalm 27, verse 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, so, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, while we are a, a, away from the Lord, 
As I've already indicated throughout the Old Testament, God also commands Israel to fear not. You want to do an interesting study someday, do a study on all of the times when God says to his people, fear not. Deuteronomy 3 verse 22, you shall not fear them for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Psalm 27, 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I will be confident. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by the day, so says Psalm 91, 5. And the verse that has probably encouraged me more than any other in this particular subject is Psalm chapter 56, verses 3 and 4. I have muttered this verse or said this verse, or yelled this verse, or prayed this verse, I don't know how many times over the years, when I am afraid. Notice what David does. He assumes the struggle. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? We need to see with fresh eyes that verse 10 is a commandment. We are commanded, be strong in the Lord. There's a second observation I want you to see. Notice that it is also centered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, be strong in the Lord. You see, the command to be strong is a, is a plea with the Ephesian believers. It's a plea for you and I to have spiritual courage, which is grounded not in our own abilities, not in our own resources, not in our portfolio, not in who we are, but it's grounded in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said? Without me, you can do knit. Without me, you can do nothing. Paul says, I can do all things through him. That is Jesus who strengthens me. Paul also said to the young pastor, Timothy, you then, my child, be, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see this Christ-centeredness. Be strong in the Lord. In 2 Timothy 4.17, Paul says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now notice here in verse 10 that Paul piles on a few terms. As I read this verse with fresh eyes, I, I remember a story. It's a story about Luis Palau, and I know many of you are familiar with him, and please be praying for, for Luis, who has very serious cancer right now. But Dr. Palau was one of my preaching professors, and he is very fond of using the phrase, mighty power. And I just love it. Every time he says it with that, with that Argentine accent, mighty power. And he says his wife, Pat, is constantly on him about that. He says, you're saying two words that mean the same thing. Mighty power. Is it might or is it power? He says, that's easy. It's mighty power. Well, look what Paul does here in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He piles on these terms. Strength means to, to power or direct, or determine, or govern. And the word might means God's ability to get the job done. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Zechariah 4, 6, you know very well, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the command to be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and the strength of his might means this. It means we trust Jesus. I am strong in the strength of his might is I trust in Jesus. I trust in his attributes. I trust, trust in his person and work. I trust in his might. He is my savior. He is my kurios. He is my Lord the word of God says, your right hand, O, o Lord, glorious in power, your right hand shatters the enemy. 
First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. See, be strong in the Lord is a command. It is also centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, I want you to see that this command, which is centered on Christ, is, is counterintuitive. You see, conventional wisdom instructs you and I to go it alone. It would, say, it would be safe to say that we live in a community, that is, we live in Whatcom County, where going it alone is commended. Anyone agree with that? We are commended for being a, a self-made man or a self-made woman. The culture that we live in is, is extremely independent. I think I've shared about our previous church and living in eastern Oregon. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was the independent nature of people in Union County. Whew, I didn't know anything until I moved to Whatcom County. We are a, an independent group of people. And so be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This is totally counterintuitive. You see, people tend to find strength in their own wisdom. They tend to find strength in their own intellect, in their own abilities, in their own ingenuity, in their own flesh. After all, I'm a self-made... No, you're not. The Word of God says, be strong in the strength of His might. Indeed, this is a counterintuitive command. Do you find daily strength in the Lord, and the strength of his might, or do you go it alone? Do you jettison this command and, and try to do it on your own terms and try to do it in your own resources? This is a crucial question that surfaced in my mind as I studied this passage. When you consider the, the God who parted the Red Sea, isn't that amazing? Yeah, young people, isn't that wild? He, can you imagine being there? You're like, Caleb, you would have went, Right? That's what you should say when you read that verse. Dude, it's incredible. God parted the Red Sea. When you consider the God who, who rescued Israel from Pharaoh. When you consider the God who delivered the men from the fiery furnace. When you consider the God who raised Jesus from the grave. Why would anyone trust in anyone but God? Why would we be tempted to trust in ourselves? And so the first thing that God requires of you on the battlefield is divine courage, which is found in Christ and Christ alone. May I see if, say if you are here this morning and you are without Christ, you need to understand that you are an open target. You are a sitting duck. The Bible warns in no uncertain terms, the soul who sins shall die. Without Christ, you will perish in your sins. And so today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a wooden cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Well, God not only requires divine courage for you and I as spiritual soldiers, he also requires divine enablement. And we'll find that in verses 11 and 13. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are called to put on the armor of God. And I want you to see four very important observations about this. Number one, this probably won't surprise you. This is also a command. We are called to, to put on the armor of God. And the, the little verb, put on, means something like this. It means you're going to literally, at a point in time, you're going to put on the armor. And this, like many verbs in the New Testament, is not written in the present tense. It doesn't mean that every day you wake up and put on your armor. No, it's a one-time thing. You put on your armor and you keep your armor on. 
You see, putting on the armor is an act of your will. Putting on the armor is an act of faith. You say, I trust in everything that Christ is for me in the armor. And we will see that as it unfolds in the weeks to come. Number two, I want you to see that this command now is comprehensive. And this is a very basic point, but it's very important. Paul instructs the Ephesians to put on how much of the armor? Do you see that there? He says, put on the whole armor. And we will discover in weeks to come that neglecting any of the armor is not only an act of disobedience, it also leads to spiritually disastrous consequences. You might illustrate it like this. A football player could wear his knee pads and his cleats and his shoulder pads. I remember my first year on the football field, I got that thing. I couldn't believe they called it a girdle. You're going to make me wear a girdle. I put my girdle on. But if you neglect to wear your helmet, what's going to happen to that player on the field? You are going to get pummeled beyond recognition. It's the same in the Christian life. If we neglect the helmet of salvation, we're asking for trouble on the battlefield. And so putting on the armor, it's a command. It's comprehensive. Number three, it's constructive. That is, it, it, it equips us for a very important task. The armor of God, as this passage tells us, enables us to stand. And I want to have you mark that word in your mind because next week we're going to focus on the word. It enables us to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil, the, the word schemes comes from the, the Greek word methodeia. You hear that word method. The schemes of the devil are designed to turn people away from God. The schemes of the devil are designed to turn people away from the word of God and designed to turn people away from the people of God. And here's what the Bible says about our enemy. Our enemy disguises himself as an angel of light. He is a murderer. He is the father of lies. He is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is the great deceiver. We have been duped into thinking in our culture that the devil is, is not real, that the devil is that goofy-looking red character with the, the horns and the pitchfork and runs around and is poking people. That's not the devil at all. The devil is a real character that Scripture describes. And he's been deceiving the nations from the beginning. He's been distorting the truth from the beginning. The devil loves to distract people. It's interesting, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis' book, Screwtape Letters, it's a rather frightening book, by the way. <laughs> and there's a section where the senior devil says to the junior devil that all I want you to do is do this. The best thing where it is possible is to keep the Christian from serious intent of praying altogether. How about that first strategy? Just, just, just keep her from praying. Just keep him from praying. If you can keep that saint from praying, you have won a significant part of the battle. Well, the devil works hard, as you know, to, to instill doubt in the people of God. He works overtime to discourage people. And any one of you that knows me at all know that I, from time to time, wrestle with discouragement. I remember my uncle, my uncle Dwight, he said to me once, never be discouraged, never be discouraged, never be discouraged. I put that three by five card by my desk and saw it every day during college. The devil is a master discourager. I should also tell you that Martin Luther battled depression for most of his adult life. In 1527, he wrote, For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. That's how bad it was. The devil also seeks to disarm people. He loves it when people neglect the command to, to put on the armor. And then John 10, of course, tells us that the devil loves to destroy people. And so this command to put on the whole armor of God is constructive. It enables you to stand against the schemes of the devil. Number four, it is calculated. It is calculated. Paul describes the battle in plain terms. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That word wrestle means the act of engaging in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. And what Paul says is critically important. He, does, 
He does not assume a struggle as he did in verse 10 here. He says it overtly. Isn't that fascinating? In verse 10, he assumes the struggle. But now as we move forward in the remainder of this passage, he says we are in a serious struggle. We are in a serious wrestling match. This is war. Yet, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the Democrats. Our struggle is not against the Republicans. Our struggle is not with the Libertarians or the Independents. Our struggle is not even with with the cults or those in various worldviews. Rather, our struggle is in the spiritual arena against the rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our struggle is with the forces of evil that oppose God, the Word of God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this struggle is supernatural. Listen, we fight in vain if we do it alone. We fight in vain if we do it in our own strength. And so in verse 13, Paul repeats the command in a slightly different way. He says this, Take up, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Guess what? This too is a command. This is also comprehensive as Paul challenges followers of Jesus to take up the whole armor of God. It is also constructive. Why? Because Paul has a specific aim for the Ephesian believers and he has a specific aim for you and I that I wish to press home now. The primary reason that you are called to take up the whole armor of God is that so that we may be able to withstand the evil one. And the beauty of this passage is this. When you take up the whole armor of God, that is when you obey, you are granted supernatural ability to do two things. You see it in verse 13. First, we are given supernatural ability to withstand evil. That term means to be against. It expresses opposition to something. It means to resist something. It means to oppose something. You want to be against something? Be against evil. You want to be against something? Oppose the devil. But it also gives us supernatural ability when we take up the whole armor of God to stand firm. Again, we'll look at that next week. It means to face or withstand something or someone with courage. May I say that again? When verse 13 says that one of the supernatural consequences of obedience, that is, taking up the whole armor of God, we are told in God's inerrant word that we will have the ability to stand firm, to face or withstand something or something with courage. And so men and women of God, young people, followers of Christ, You have been granted supernatural ability to withstand the forces of darkness and stand firm. Now, everyone in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are engaged in a cosmic struggle. I don't know what your struggle looks like this week. You may be wrestling doubt. Does God exist? Is the word of God true? You may be depressed. You may be discouraged. You may be facing some kind of an inner turmoil that that is literally eating you up on the inside. Perhaps you're battling guilt. It's something you did in your days past and you're struggling and wrestling with guilt. Or maybe you're on the slippery slope of temptation. Maybe you're struggling with infidelity. Maybe you're ready to chuck your wedding vows. Maybe you're you're toying with chucking your long-held beliefs about God and the Word of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be battling some kind of sexual sin that will eventually ruin your life. You may, you may be on the brink of rebellion. You may have suicidal thoughts. You may be feeling right now like giving up in the race. I want to encourage you this morning to be strong in the strength that God provides. I want to have you watch a video. It's a short video that will encourage you this morning to be brave. And then I'll come back with a few closing comments.
Many of you probably did not see what happened at the beginning of that video. This was straight from the internet. But isn't it just like the devil to just drop something into a video that's a very God-centered song? For those of you that didn't see it, don't worry about it. But um, how many of you are prepared to be brave in this spiritual battle? Because what just happened right there was unbelievable. Um, The devil will do anything to sidetrack the people of God, and we won't allow it to happen, will we? And so this is what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to open up our spiritual eyes. He's calling us to wake up to spiritual reality. And he's calling us to be men and women and young men and young women of divine courage and divine enablement. And the only way we do that is by donning the spiritual armor that is at our disposal. We will take the next several weeks to look at each piece of the spiritual armor. And we will be better equipped when we're done with this series to wear that spiritual armor in faith and to trust the indwelling Christ so that we can move forward in, in effectiveness and fruitfulness, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. So, Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign even over the things that are unplanned and we're unaware of. We thank you that we are in a battle where your son has won the victory for the glory of God and on our behalf. God, I pray for these dear people that you enable them uh, by your spirit to be brave to be bold, to manifest divine courage, and that you would also uh, provide that divine enablement in the armor, that they would be obedient as they make a point-in-time decision to wear the armor, each piece of the armor, not neglecting any of it. And so we look forward for our time together next week when we begin to, to unpack the armor of God that has been granted to each follower of Christ. Now, would you bless each of us? Would you send us forward in, in the strength that you, you provide by your spirit? Help us have a good lunch together and enjoy some sweet fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.